Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm talking to prolific nature writer and biologist Amy Jan Beer, who is based in Yorkshire and writes columns for The Guardian, BBC Wildlife and Countryfile magazine. She currently has two books coming out with A Tree A Day in September this year and The Flow, A Return to the River and we're going to talk a little bit about both of these books and nature writing in general. If you can, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help the podcast by donating £3 to keep it going and if you could also leave a review, that really helps me out. Myself and Amy discuss how she picks stories to write about, a little bit about wild swimming and does planting trees really offset carbon? Here's the chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you, Jack. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. No, it's good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we've got a chance to have a good old chat because we've met a couple of times, haven't we? I think Bird Fair, I bumped into you. Yes, and, usually and... in muddy tents. and. Yeah, Network for yeah. Nature, the other one, which I know you've yes. got a, yeah. a finger or two in that. So it's nice to just have a, a good old uh, chat with it all. But I think what I'll start with is uh, some of the, books that you I say books because there is more than one that you're working on and one of them I believe is coming out this year is on trees is that right? Yes I've, I've literally just been looking at proofs of it today it's called a tree a day and it follows on from a couple of others one was called a cloud a day and another a bird a day which Dom Cousins um, wrote so I'm following in some big big shoes there. With trees one of the common things people always talk about is carbon offsetting and I just mm. wondered if if you've done any research into it in that is it as simple that you can jet set as long as you plant a couple of trees or am I oversimplifying oh, well, more, it? <laughs> a lot more than a couple. <laughs> I think there's various ways of, of offset, offsetting carbon, but basically it, it, the offsetting is just, a, it's a financial sort of, it's a financial process, isn't it? Offsetting rather than necessarily a, a direct one. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know, X number of trees will be planted. And and the whole idea of planting trees as a, as a carbon sink obviously is, it has some basis in in science but you know it is contentious because the trees if you're going to plant trees they need to be planted in the right place there's another school of thought that says that actually trees that allowing trees to regenerate naturally is far better than than planting them and because you know, planting trees there's 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 plantations and there's and there's forest or semi-natural you know forest and they're very different creatures you know so if you're paying to just have you know, tree factories installed on land that maybe isn't appropriate, then or tree farms rather on land that isn't appropriate, then then that has potential to be far more damaging in, in climate terms and biodiversity terms. So yeah, we have to be careful about about and, and there are other ways to you know, create carbon sinks. The oceans okay. are fantastic carbon sinks and um, and so are grassland and so are peat bogs. I mean, there's yeah, just, ponds are as well, aren't they? Nature ponds. is very good at sequestering carbon in general, so um, it doesn't all have to be about trees. Much as I love trees. Yeah, and I, I suppose the simple answer would be uh, if you can help it, don't don't go halfway across the world. Is the probably yeah. the, the easiest solution, yeah. isn't it? And I think Absolutely. if any, if COVID's taught us anything, there's a lot of things you can do from your living room or from your yeah, office. Yeah, there are or... things that you really need to travel for possibly to do. Um, and others that you don't. I mean, our, my global travelling has been drastically curtailed. You know, I've done I've done one one long haul in in ten years, 
And then the only thing, I think the only other flight I took in those 10 years was to the Isles of Scilly. So it wasn't a lot. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone's going to begrudge you for that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we will, we will fly again. We will go long haul again. But I would be more inclined because it would be doing it, you know, to go and travel and see wildlife. It would be more making it, you know, a real highlight of the decade sort of trip. Maybe you know, take longer over it, join several trips together. You can do the do the long haul and then maybe you know travel around an area a bit more. And that that's something that we'd love to do as a family. Um, and we're kind of waiting until the boy's old enough to really appreciate it. So I'm far from saying I will never, you know, never fly again or but um but just doing it thoughtfully and and um, looking into whatever offsetting you know is appropriate and Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of agree with you when you're saying like to make the most of it. Like, I, I'd love to do Australia. That's one of my top places. And I thought if I'm going to go to Australia, I might as well do New Zealand. And if you're going to go yeah. there, you might as well do Tasmania or whatever. So all these kind of emerging islands and may, maybe see a phylocene if I'm very lucky as we've just been. Well, there. God, yes, <laughs> that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? <laughs> as we're, I, I should just give that some context because as as this as the time of recording, there may have been a phylocene recorded which would be very, very exciting, although we'll probably know by the time this comes out, but at the minute we still are on tender hooks. Yes, I was literally watching that video when um, when this Zoom call started, so so you found me a bit of a gibbering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you never know. By the end of this Zoom call, we might have found out oh, what, gosh, it, what yeah. it was, but that would be pretty, pretty amazing, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? Your other book that you're still working on is you have to forgive me the title but it's on rivers isn't it is it it is yes it's called the flow the flow um, that was it the river that was it um um, yes that one um was due to be finished by now but um but then the pandemic jumped in and put paid to a lot of the field work um i had planned and also you know brought lockdown schooling into my life Um, yeah (laughs) that um which basically is, is not excuse my dog barking there's been many dogs on this podcast so yeah don't <laughs> don't worry <laughs> but yes um so schooling has, has had to take precedence over over writing unfortunately but yeah so that book is delayed by a year but you know that's it is what it be, is be worth it when it comes it's out life sure. in 2021 isn't it <laughs> yeah exactly and have you uh, done any wild swimming for the book have you done any of that as part of it um well i'm i, I do i do what wild swim or I do swim in the wild so I wouldn't say it's necessarily for the book but it's no okay it's a it's a way of experiencing rivers the sort of the the reason I wanted to write about rivers particularly was that um, I used to do a lot of whitewater kayaking so that used to be the way I engaged with rivers and they were all fast and steep and and foaming and um and we saw plenty of wildlife doing that one of the great things about about that kind of kayaking is it gets you access into parts of rivers that there's no other way into so you know, t- gorges and, and and the like so some absolutely magical magical places but yeah that it's a it's a pretty uh pretty hardcore sport to do at, at any serious level um doesn't mix very well with family life so i don't really do that anymore but i missed the river you know, hugely um and so i started looking into other ways of being with rivers and um so that has involved that did involve swimming um, or just walking by them or canyoning or or even snorkeling which is something that you know I've started going under the water which you know it would be no surprise to you to uh, to hear me say oh my god it's just <laughs> an experience the first time yeah. I actually put my face under with a with a, a mask on you know I, I, I dived in the sea but but never in the rivers and this 
particularly in some of the chalk rooms around here, which are fantastically clean. Yeah, it's definitely a different experience to um, to being in the sea and, and yeah, just being yes. in a river is just, you know, to excuse the phrase, but go with the flow, you know, and what going yes. along the, the current is, is fantastic. And if people ever have a chance to snorkel in a river, I know access, and I'm going to come on to that in a second, actually, but mm. access can be tricky, but um, I definitely recommend it. It's a phenomenal experience and I think yeah. everyone should yeah. give it a go if they can. Definitely, definitely. It's, um, yes, absolutely blew my mind. So how how did you find access to rivers? And it's something I constantly get asked about, but I just wondered, like, with, with say, some of your local Yorkshire chalk streams, were, were people happy to let you get in, or was there a bit um, of kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, I the ones that I've I've snorkelled in, that's on um, one of the newer nature reserves, and I did have you know, explicit permission to to be there particularly with chalk streams, you know, they are so fragile. I would hate to be someone that was sort of initiating a whole new sort of leisure activity of let's all go and jump in the nearest chalk river because that could be really damaging. Um, they are incredibly delicate habitats. So, you know, I was moving around in the river as little as possible with any of my body on the, what I call crocodiling. I don't know if that's a technical term. <laughs> Floating, but just using my hands, my fingers really to just sort of Toddle along on the gravel so not standing in it certainly not walking around or trampling in it just letting my body float and and, and just steering a little bit with my hands no I think that's definitely the way to go like, I think people always think well you got your fins kick 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 yeah often, no. no you kind of yeah crocodile I'm going to use that that's a good term so I like yeah, facing upstream to just sort of hold position uh, and using the bigger rocks to sort of hang on to in the, the, in the shallow water but uh, but then, like you described, just drift, drift snorkel down, just look, just go with the flow, and that is it's well, I I likened it to being in like being in a flight simulator when when it's quite shallow water and you get yeah. that really close view, and you're just zooming over these this underwater landscape, yeah yeah it's but pretty it's, pretty amazing you feel like you're going really fast even if, it, even if yeah you do yeah I I think as in terms of what I found with access anyway is that. Because someone will, if it's in England anyway, someone will own, own the, the banks, the access mm. to it. And it's just a case of just asking. I think people just don't like surprise, particularly if it's an angling mm. club. They're not going to appreciate mm. people bubbling around. But if I think if you explain what you're trying to do, they might say no, but at least you've asked, you know, so. Mm. Yeah, well, it was it was a problem and it is a problem with, with kayaking. Definitely There's, there are mm. challenges to to access and the big problems with lack of access to um, to rivers in, in Britain. Of you know of of the rivers that could technically be kayaked, only about two percent have um have you know rights of, of access. So because navigable navigable rivers technically are the navigable was was back in the day when we were thinking about big boats, not little kayaks. Which you know technically a kayak can go down pretty much anything. Um, yeah. Um, so a lot of the rivers that you might want to kayak on um, don't have uh, an automatic right in England anyway. It's different in Scotland. They have um, much more sensible access rights to roam and etc yes yeah, um, yeah, yeah so their rights to roam cover rivers um in england it's, it's it's much more tricky um and very limited in where you can paddle and when so the kayaking season is in the winter and sort of november to march when the when the fishermen aren't so it's, isn't it, it something to do with the height of the river as well is it that there's a certain height in some you, cases is it yeah, okay in some cases the rivers have the, 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 the access agreement is you can paddle it when it's above a certain level yeah that you're not you know, scraping along disturbing the, the bed and the gravels and that sort of thing which is sensible you know that that's that's a common sense approach yeah um, the, the other approach that says you know well i'm making money 
with from from license fees rob fees um or i i pay to fish here and so no one else should be allowed so there's there is friction there unfortunately um um but not in other countries so that suggests to me that it's a social problem rather than a, a yeah yeah i mean it, go paddling in in um in the alps or in scotland and and you know it, you get a cheery cheery wave from from the fishermen you go by and uh, a different experience so yeah it, it can be done we just need to find a way of bringing it yeah in. compromise I'm, i suppose at the end of fight. the day i i no. just think um there are there are more than one ways to appreciate a river um and why can't we all have a bit of that yeah yeah, it's a great resource, so we should, you know, be good to, to try it out. You mentioned the the two books, and I wondered because obviously you're quite a prolific nature writer. So how do you pick uh, stories when you're pitching to magazines or, or newspapers like The Guardian or whatever? Like, is it your, do they come to you and say we want you to do a story on X Y Z, or are you like actually I I found this amazing little story? Are you interested? It's probably about half and half. To be is honest. it okay? Uh, I mean, with books as well, you know, a, a lot of the, the more kind of straight natural history books are written in the past have been um, ones that the publishers come to me saying, oh, we'd, we'd you know, like to do a book on this, that and the other. And would you write it for us? Um, so it's only really in the last few years where I started doing a lot more creative nature writing um, that um, it's become more personal and more something that, you know, it would work the other way around where I'll, I'll pitch an idea the publisher it must be quite nice if you've got a publisher coming to you it means you're doing something right doesn't it um it is nice yeah but it also means you're you they, they tell you what to write and how long it's going to be oh, okay okay that sort of thing so in terms of creativity you have a much less much less creative control over the end product um but it's still you know it's i'm a freelancer so it's nice to be asked if work is always good but yeah, the, the the books that have my the book that has my heart at the moment is the one that's all mine. Um, so um, yeah, it's also the most stressful. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you you want to you want to make it right, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's putting you know put, like putting yourself on the page, and um, whereas other other well, if it's more factual, um, not not that the creative nature writing isn't isn't, isn't factual, but um, but if it's a much much more straight traditional natural history book. Um, there are only so many ways of getting that information across. Yes, um, yeah. But, you know, because my background is is science. I'm, I was a biologist, and um, so you know that that accuracy and that sort of scientific, that rigorous scientific approach um, is really really important. Um, and it's yeah, as I say, it's only more recently that I've started writing about um, nature in a much more personal way, much more emotional way. Um, and I, you know, I love doing it. It's, I realised that this is probably the sort of writing I should have been doing um, all those years, but you know it takes it takes a while to work out what is uh, what is your thing. So, is it important to develop your own style of writing? Then you think? Well, I have several styles, and it depends okay. on my. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I certainly don't always write the same way. You know, you, you'd take one voice writing for different age groups, for example, or for. Um, I'd write in a different style. I do a column for British Wildlife, so that has quite a different voice to something I would be writing, you know, in my more creative um, nature writing to the, the River Book, for example, um, or the Country Diaries I do for the Guardian, um, which are a bit more sort of waxing lyrical. Um, yeah. Um, and then the straight natural history, more kind of encyclopedic um, information, or the books that I do for publishers like Dorling Kindersley, where it's, you know, 
incredibly information rich, but in tiny little chunks of glorified captions almost um, that have to summarize, you know, evolution or photosynthesis or, you know, some complex process in 27 words precisely because that's the space they've given you. Um, so yeah, very, you know, very different. Um, but it's a bit like acting. I quite enjoy the uh, taking it on a different voice <clears throat> um, and going with that. Well, it's good that you're versatile, I guess, as well, because then yeah, people helps. can come to you with, you know, with lots of different, I mean, my, um, I wouldn't describe, I have, I can write words, I wouldn't describe myself as a writer, just because, uh, I don't know, I, I've, I've done books and, and magazine yeah, well, articles. therefore you are a writer. <laughs> I suppose so, by definition, I guess, but um, I've, yeah, I, I, I feel much more comfortable. I, yeah, that's interesting, I have the same sort of hesitation in calling myself a naturalist, or I did for a lot of years, I do, I do now, but... Okay. Uh, but for years, I just I didn't quite fit the image in my head that I had of a naturalist, um, which is ridiculous. So, um, yeah. Well, a naturalist. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you probably know the definition. Isn't it's just someone who's interested in nature, isn't it? It's not. It's not a formal. Yeah, it's yes. not a formal yeah. degree or anything. You don't have to have a degree to be a naturalist. No, is someone no. who likes nature, isn't it? Yeah, I know. So I had to have a word with myself, really. Yeah. I was in, you know, the, the naturalist in my head was, you know, someone like um, Oliver Rackham, or you know, this sort of. <laughs> an older male yeah 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 with a with a butterfly net or something you know um, Beard. To, um yeah i just had to realize that you know, that, that is me yeah i i think there's not there shouldn't be a a stereotype i guess should there anyone uh, can be i think i just didn't feel i knew enough but okay i think if if, if a naturalist is anything it's someone that knows they don't know enough um okay know. that's a good way of putting it the more you learn, the more you realise just, you know, it's hopeless. <laughs> we'll never ever know it all. No, but, definitely. You know, literally every day there is something else out there. So how, how long did it take you then before you feel like you've made it in writing then? Because if you started off as a scientist and then you turned, <laughs> your, turned your hand oh. to writing. I made, made it my, I know if you don't like to self-glorify, but like at what point were you like, oh, this, maybe there's a career in this? Um, well, I guess I've been making my, you know, I've been making a living doing it for 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and the first time you get something that's got your name on it and it's in print, um, that's, that's good. Um, so I guess, you know, in some ways as, as a writer, after my first year of freelance and I, you know, hadn't starved or lost. <laughs> it's always a bonus, head, isn't it? Thought, yeah. Okay. This is all right. Yeah. Um, I can just about make it work. Um, but in terms of being, you know, um, in terms of calling myself a writer and feeling that it was going okay, I don't know. I think probably in the last three or four years where I felt like I'm writing the kind of thing I really want to write, it's the, it's the work of my heart now um, and other people seem to enjoy it. So, you know, I can't ask more than that. It's, um, no, it's, definitely. But I'm still, you know, I'm still completely, um, you know, I still get giddy when anyone gives me a nice comment on Twitter. It's still, you know, just... Um, I go like that little blushing emoji, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, it'll, it'll never, you, you'll never be quite certain. I've, everything I file, I'm thinking, oh, have I, you know, got that right or have I overdone it or underdone it or, yeah, so I think that's a thing with writing. You could always tweak and tweak and tweak and go back, but that's what deadlines are for, to stop us obsessing over, you know endless revision yeah i mean I, I remember going to bird fair and seeing i think it was mark carradine did a, a, a field i said field guides are the worst books to do because undoubtedly like the following year something yeah. will get renamed or they'll reclassify something or they'll find out 
a new species and and yeah so it's, it's not you can obsess it's out of date for us it before the ink's even dry yeah and in <laughs> yeah. some cases yeah. they are aren't they so they are yeah. they are a nightmare to do in that regard so um yeah i guess you can't you can't obsess over it too much you just have to do what exactly. you can and put it yeah. out yeah yeah exactly so it's you know it's, it's as, as good as you could make it at the time you were making it and um and if it's if it's um you know more kind of new nature writing then it's it's as true as you can make it um you know it's how you felt about whatever it was at the time um so when you say um new nature writing is this the sort of um what's the best way to describe it h is h is for hawk that sort of stuff is that what you're talking well, that's, about that's usually given as the benchmark where, where yeah okay kind of began um uh, and it is this sort of blend of 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 nature but it's very very sort of experiential and, and through the the eye of the beholder and the and the, the mind and the the life of the beholder so everything um i guess it's that back to that sort of everything is connected trope in that in some way my life is connected to everything that's out there um and everything that's out there is is connected to me because it makes me feel this way or it makes me behave this way um so um so i think it's quite true to how we experience nature and the, and the popularity of it suggests that you know these, i guess these are not alone in the way they feel um I guess the nice thing with it is, let's say uh, you read Hages for Hawk or Butterfly Isles or whatever, you don't have to love butterflies or hawks or whatever. It, it's that journey that person's making that can can grip you, isn't it? So I suppose that's, that's maybe the only way, which you know it will be for lots of people to you know to other nature. And I know there are plenty of people for whom it's just a turn off, and they want their their books about nature to be to be just that, um, to be to be straight, informative, um, descriptive for sure, but but keep all the, you know, all the emotional stuff out of it. Um, and that's fine. But yeah. there, there already were plenty of that sort, sort, sort of book um, and, you know, they're still being produced. So the, the, so new nature writing as a, as a genre um, fills a different sort of, um, different need that readers seem to have or um, a different desire that readers have to connect or to feel connected. Um, and to be honest, you know, I, I don't worry about it too much. What, it, what it's called it's it's for publishers and marketeers to decide yeah 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 um it's the role of a writer to just write um, yeah of course yeah in the box like, <laughs> yeah um, so you know it is convenient shorthand for for those sorts of books um where there's something something more and other to it than just a book of information yeah no i think so and like like you say if it's a if it's a bit of a gateway drug into nature yeah. then then why not Let, let's that go for it that's a good thing yeah absolutely yeah, exactly and i was uh re reading up um about some of the other bits i've done you've done some uh, nature friendly farming or, or kind of corresponded on that uh, and it might sound counterproductive to some people because to to some nature and farming don't necessarily get along but as as has been proven the two can coexist can't they mm. absolutely i mean farming is nature um, yeah 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 you know humanity is nature and, and farming is one of the chief ways that we engage with nature you know we're, we're we're going out and feeding ourselves that's all we're doing that's all and that's what every other animal on the planet has to do um in some way um and farming is a large part of our way of doing it um certainly in you know in the developed world there's not many of us that, that will go out um and and you know forage um or hunt for our for our every meal i mean you could do it um, <laughs> But, but the vast majority of us don't. So we, we've substituted farming for that. Um, and, and it's made us who we are, you know, as a species, um, you know, a huge part of our 
social development is because we stopped, we settled down, um, we learned to to cultivate crops, um, and we had homes because of it. We we stopped being nomadic, um, and um, and so you know, civilizations grew up, towns, villages, cities. Um, so you know, so much comes back to farming that you know, we can't we can't undo it, but. Um, but it's really only in the last few decades where the intensification of it um, has escalated exponentially to the extent where it's just, you know, it is unsustainable, wholly unsustainable. Um, so, um, so we have to find a way back um, and, um, and, and work with nature and allow nature in. And, th and those farmers that are doing it are finding that they can, um, you know, they can share their land with, um, with wildlife um, and certainly, you know, Got um, well, live in a I live in a farming area, so I've got lots of neighbours. Yeah. <clears throat> and one of them in particular, in the last five years or so, has started um, trying more more nature friendly farming and, and and leaving leaving space for for wildlife on his farm. And just seeing his sort of journey and his joy at discovering and realizing that the birds he's seeing are there because of the way he's managing the land. Um, it's fantastic and he's totally won over by it um and i think that's the thing about nature once you've got a little bit of it you, you want more and you want more so um so gateway drugs definitely <laughs> <laughs> a bit of gateway uh, gateway nature drug would you know it's definitely a good thing yeah um, and um you know it will help us all and that's so that old sort of idea of mixed farming um you know can be hugely beneficial for nature there's, there's plenty of farmers proving that um and that means yeah. animals as well. That does mean livestock. So the whole, you know, although I, I about once a year, um, as a because I like it, but as a it's very much a you know a treat um, and, a, and a sort of celebratory thing. Um, and um, I'm not suggesting everyone else should should adopt that. That people people do what they what they feel, but um, we do need to find a way of eating the amount of meat and dairy that can be produced in a sustainable biodiversity enhancing carbon sequestering way which you know on this small island um because it should be local as well um on this small island of great britain um is less than we currently consume as a population so there's a there's a there's an equation there where it will all balance yeah well i i've, I've tried to go vegetarian this month just to see how i get on and uh, so far, I'm not having any problems. I'll probably, I'm not going to say I'll be vegetarian forever, but I'm trying to get to the point where I have more vegetarian meals than meat. I don't think I'd ever not stop eating meat completely because I, mm. I like eating meat. But if I, if everyone ate less meat, it would, it would help a lot. I think the trouble with, trouble, I'll be careful how I say this, the trouble with veganism is it's almost like the hard sell. It's like, no, no meat, no dairy, boom. And, it, and a lot of people are going to push back against that. Whereas if you're like, well, look, just try it for a couple of days a week or meatless Monday is how I started just one day a week. And then I found, oh, I actually quite enjoy some of these meals. So I upped it to two days a week and I'm currently on three days. And the hope is to get to four, maybe even five and maybe just have meat at the weekends as a treat. And that's that. Yeah. And you imagine if everyone yeah. did that, it'd make a huge difference. You know, I think that's an entirely reasonable journey. And I think but, but at the same time, um, if, if we're looking at this overall sort of equation for, for balancing yeah. Our, our our diet as a as a nation um then if some people want to eat no meat at all or or, or no animal based products at all then um then that's fine that helps that helps the balance in some way yeah. um, but you but 
for their health, they need to be not eating too many processed meals, which, you know, there are an awful lot of um, for, for diets that exclude meat and dairy. You know, there's a lot of processed food um, and it's, there's a lot of imported food um, and there's a lot of food that's, you know, if you're switching from dairy, I, I don't drink drink milk anymore, dairy milk, I, I drink oat milk. Um, some of the other alternatives, it's, you know, almond milk or, or soy milk, you know, they there are concerns over that. Yeah, yeah, environmentally, they're um, not much better, But at better, least oats can be yeah. grown here and yeah. And, um, yeah, so you can't you can't do it all. There's just so much pressure to Yeah, there is, yeah. Every little micro decision as a consumer you can agonize over and it could drive you mad um but there are you know obvious steps that you can take and just considering it a little bit more and just trying to live a little bit more lightly um and buy you know that, that there's a fantastic farmer not far from me who's who's absolutely busting a gut to do the right thing um and he's a he's a beef farmer beef and dairy um on the derwent on the river i live on further down the Derwent Ings, which is a fantastic area for birds, triple um, SI designated, um, and his cattle graze in the summer on the on the Ings, but in the winter they those areas are completely underwater. So it's it's part of flood management for the whole region, um, and and it's brilliant for the birds um, and for the the sort of meadow um, flora that come there. And he's you know he's absolutely great, but it's it's really hard to do the right thing. You know he's on const under constant pressure to. Um, to, from both sides, from you know, conservationists. Yeah, I yeah, I know. I, environmentalists, I do. you know, radical vegans who who um, you know don't want anything to do with the fact that he rears cattle. Um, and and farmers, on the other hand, in, you know, and he's just such a voice of reason. Um, um, so um, he, it's the it it behoves all of us to actually listen to those voices in what I call the messy middle, and, um, <laughs> and give them. Give them credit for trying to do yeah, it, trying it, to feed us and look after the land and encourage biodiversity. Um, you know, it's a pretty, pretty thankless task if we can't actually say, well done and, and support them. So yes, yeah. yeah, last time I ate beef was actually the Christmas before last, but um, it was his. So I thought, yeah. right, well done, Rob. You know, you <laughs> are going to eat <laughs> eat meat. Um, so we had some of his um, his beef, and it was yeah. No, I bet, I bet it was. Um, and you touched on it a little bit there, but obviously you're living in North Yorkshire. Well, what's the wildlife like locally uh, for you? Have you got much to see kind of from your, I say from your doorstep, but in your local area? Yeah, literally from my doorstep. We, you know, we're very lucky. We live just on the edge of the Castle Howard estate, which is between York and, and Scarborough and the Hawardian Hills. Um, and our house is kind of a bit out of the village. So, so literally um, I can go for a walk around the woods in my pyjamas. Um, <laughs> in the mornings um so um yeah we live just opposite the woods so so yeah we, we are incredibly fortunate particularly in the last year you know we've never felt so so blessed to live where we do um it's a bit of an expedition to go and you know, do anything else um but um but yeah it's it's pretty special for, for wildlife um and the estate is in the process of, of um, as many large landowners are looking at ways to make more space for nature um, do little bits of you know, ecological restoration. I mean, it's all, like I say, it's already pretty good for wildlife, but there's always, they're looking at ways of, of doing more um, and all credit to them. You know, they, they are progressive and, and they have an eye on the, the, um, it's a big um, tourist attraction as well, the, the estate. So the house oh, okay. um, it was where Brideshead Revisited was filmed. So it's, you know, it's, it, 
has I've been visited a year, something like that, um, to the house and the gardens. Um, and then the big estates, very popular with, with walkers. So, you know, they're aware that you know, people are interested in concepts like rewilding and might come to visit for that, as well as for the more traditional country estate side of things. So they're, they're canny. Um, they also know that, you know, agricultural subsidies are going to be changing. Um, and, and public goods are going to be something, you know, a big, big factor in that. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a financial incentive as well, but, but, but basically they just want to do the right thing with this land that they are custodians of, um, which is very commendable. And I think, you know, there are a lot of large landowners that are coming around to that way of thinking, particularly the younger ones, I think. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that you've got stuff on your doorstep, whether it's your pyjamas or your walking boots, and you can kind of get stuck into that and uh, get some some good views. Well, I mean, that pretty much brings me to the end of it. So it's been great to kind of get a glimpse into your varied career of writing and all that world. So it's been a pleasure talking to you, Amy. Thank you very much. Cheers. Hopefully. Well, I mean, do we, dare we dream that it might be uh, in person? I don't know. Hopefully it will be. But Who we'll, knows? Who we'll knows? See. But we'll see. But, yeah, one day soon. Yeah. Take care. Will do. Bye for now. That was Amy Jan Beer. She's a very talented and busy writer, and no doubt you'll have encountered her work along the way. Can't wait to read that river book. As a side note, the thylacine we talked about turned out to be a padmelon. Padmelon? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, you Google it. But who knows? There could be some out there. Maybe a future topic for a podcast one day. Next week, I have the force of nature that is Yolo Williams, who is one of the main presenters for Springwatch, as well as a host of other nature programmes. We talk about Welsh wildlife, egg collectors, and how we started out as a presenter. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>